Are we doing our best work where we're desperate to prove ourselves? Or are we doing our best work when there's a sense of ease and openness and people are being welcomed? Do you want to direct an award show? Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've never done that. Sure, why not? Let's, okay, sure, sure, sure. Help me understand what success is for you. Because that, that's very informative, right? That, that will guide, that will guide a lot of your decision-making. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast. And hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Rob. On episode two, Johnny Kim talked about directing, and on episode six, Matthew Justnard shared with us his experience as a producer. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Steen to chat about directing and producing large-scale events. Jennifer is the founder of Skylark Events. She is an award-winning festival director, event director, and producer with experience in all event management issues, including programming, team building, production supervision, budgeting, client servicing, creative ideation, and technical execution. She is equally at home in the commercial, corporate, and nonprofit environments. Experienced as a leader and a collaborator, Jennifer is known for her innovative strategies, team motivation, and ability to deliver meaningful events and programs. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. We're so happy to have you. Oh, I'm so happy to join you guys. This is really exciting. It's like it's a chance to talk about yourself without paying a therapist to listen to you. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So if you were to sum up what you do, Jennifer, like tell us, tell us about what your role is. Like what, what do you do? I know that you do a lot of different things. So how would you summarize that? Uh, quickly, I would summarize it as a lack of attention span, you know, because I do, I do love to jump from discipline to discipline and role to role. I've been very lucky in that I seem to have hopped, you know, from like lily pad to lily pad, you know, to have all of these different experiences. So I currently, I would say primarily I uh, split my time between producing, uh, producing events uh, and directing them. Or sort of there's a nice synthesis of, you know, what I call myself as a, a creative producer. So, so that's a role that I think I have, I've grown into and I'm most comfortable in where I get to be a part of the initial uh, creative vision of a project. And then I get to be, you know, part of the team that, that um, puts it together, executes it, you know, and, you know, sees it through to its, to its performance stage. That would be really what my focus is now. With a sort of a side order of curation, I would say, because I am, I am hard for that. What kind of events would you sort of summarize that you do? Well, if it wasn't the year of COVID, <laughs> if it wasn't the pandemic, I have really, I would say in general, it is any form of public engagement that is fun, I love to do. So uh, that could be. Um, sport and culture. So that could be an opening ceremony or it could be um, game presentation for a large sporting event, whether that's, you know, a big intermission show or a big pre-show, you know, for, for network television, uh, stuff like that. But I also get a huge amount of joy out of producing festival programming. So it could be, you know, 
a large concert series for an arts festival. I love to do, I think, I don't think anything gives me more joy than, you know, seeing a live orchestra. Um, you know, the first rehearsal, first rehearsal of a live orchestra is the greatest thing for me. Um, so it could be something like that. I do, you know, occasionally dip my toe into corporate theater as well, sort of large scale uh, corporate theater because it's, it's got its own challenges and it's fun. And there is a real sense of camaraderie in that world that I really, really enjoy. So it's, it's kind of a mix of all of those things. I love to work it, uh, for cultural institutions who are doing kind of brave programming uh, and, you know, trying to find new ways to engage the public that I love to do as well. It's kind of a mix of all those things, but it's, it's really essentially the same thing, which is how to engage people. You know, I'm, if I'm, if I'm, if I go out to buy groceries and I hear that there's a band on a tiny stage around the corner, I run. Like I still, I still need to know what's going on. What's happening. Oh my God, there's a band. Oh, something's happening. You know, that impulse still inspires me. You know, that's what inspires me. It's that, it's a, the, the word disruption has been terribly misused, I think. And it's been sort of, um, you know, kind of, you know, taken uh, by corporate culture. But I think of it in a, in a really positive way, disruption. It's, it's disrupting your day in a really good way, you know, and, and it's that impulse that I'm still fascinated by. I might say elevate instead of disrupt. I think that might be, you know, there's something that lifts you out of that regular track that your mind is running on, right? And that is what I'm fascinated in. That's what I'm fascinated by, I should say. I don't like the word disruption because it means that it's forcing you to stop and think. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I like that part of it. Yes, I agree. I absolutely agree, Anna. I just, sometimes I, 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 I become a little uh, wary around words that get overused. But I think you're right in terms of it's, you know, it's, it's sort of pure intention. Yes. Yes. I, I actually want to be disruptive. It is overused in the corporate environment as a, like a catch cry of like, we're going to be disruptive. And then it becomes obnoxious. And I think that's why, because I've done a lot of corporate stuff as well. And I, it, it, it grates me probably like it grates you, but from an artisan theatrical sense, disruption is a perfect word, as long as it hasn't been stolen by the corporate world. Exactly. As long as it's not a, you know, as long as it's not a 3D animation, exactly. you know, spinning around a logo. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> Disrupt. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I guess the artist in me spoke. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so she should. <laughs> so she must. Absolutely. Um, so tell us about Skylark events. Yeah. So Skylark was sort of, it's a loose, I would call it a loose um, collective in a way. So Skylark is sort of, you know, my corporate, you know, identity. Really, you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. I formed Skylark because many, many years ago, a client said, I, we can't pay you as a person. We need to pay you as a company. And I went, oh, okay. Well, I'll... I'll make a company, you know, really that's, the, I just want to get paid. So um, I formed Skylark, Skylark, uh, the word, it took me back to a, a nostalgic memory of uh, riding in my grandfather's car because he drove a Buick Skylark. 
And I love the old meaning of the word skylarking, which is, you know, sort of mischief. So I thought it was a, it was a nice fit. So initially that's why I started Skylark. But then what happened is it, be, it became sort of, um, I never set out to have an infrastructure. I never set out, I was never really interested in having a bricks and mortar company. Uh, so before we were doing everything virtually, that's kind of what Skylark was. It was this great collective of production, production experts, creative people. Um, it expanded and contracted uh, uh, depending on the project. It became this sort of great umbrella under which uh, we could, um, you know, um, bid for business. So, so Skylark, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not a traditional company in that sense. It really was um, an identity that I created under which I could bring people together is, is really what it was. So, so ultimately once things, once my career started to, to move in a really great direction, I was able to bring a team of people on board and that's what Skylark was. So I could bring design, stage management, um, you know, production management, whatever the project uh, required, I, I could do that, uh, you know, under the umbrella of Skylark. And Skylark could also function as, you know, in, in the times that I have functioned as a curator, um, you know, Skylark would be the company that would administer, um, you know, artist payroll, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it needed to be. Tell us a little bit about leadership in a creative company and, and role. Cause you know, I, I think, a lot of people talk about leadership in, in the normal business sense, but I think there's a, it's a special beast in, in a creative process because there's so many unknowns when you're moving forward with a, a show or a concept. So how, would you, how do you approach a project from a leadership position? It's a really interesting question because um, I'm fascinated by, I think there is a tension uh, between the concept of leadership and how we live within a creative community. Because I think what you see is, is, is what appears to be a dichotomy sometimes of, wait a minute, I'm working within a structure uh, that is quote unquote non-traditional and that we're, we're probably embracing, you know, different ideals and different goals. And we are uh, embracing creativity above all, but then you bump up against the necessity of a hierarchical structure and you know you, you know there needs to be something in place in order to move everybody forward and i think i think it's an interesting tension and i think i've spent a lot of my career exploring what that means i've done some leadership training but from a from a buddhist um, perspective uh, because i wanted to see what that meant outside of a very narrowly defined um, western understanding so it's a so it's a long way of saying I think it's a fluid thing and I think maybe that's part of what leadership is is understanding understanding the playing field understanding what everybody needs to move forward understanding what is tripping people up or challenging them um, understanding how to remove the obstacles knowing when to sort of smooth the path for people, knowing when to lead the charge. And I think it is about adapting to each project. 
because as we all learn, it's like we go to school on every project we do. You know, we, we, want, we want to kid ourselves like, well, I know how to do this. I've done, I've done five of these, right? And then it's like, oh, uh, no, this is completely different. Something else comes up and you're like, oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, what, wait, someone, someone's going to be welding on stage? Well, uh, how does that work? You know, you know, sometimes, you know, you bang your head on the table and say, can I do one show that I've done before? And the answer is no. No, you can't. <laughs> you have to meet the challenge of each show. And so I really struggle with the idea of authority, how it is wielded, and how people come into a situation thinking they're supposed to be a leader. Because I think that's where we get tripped up sometimes. I think what happens is, particularly when you're early on in your career, you may walk into situations where you think, oh, well, I mean, because I did go through this early in my career where sometimes I was the youngest one in the room and I was supposed to be in charge. And that's an interesting challenge. And you walk into the room and you think, well, I'm supposed to act this way. You know, if I'm quote unquote in charge, then I'm supposed to be forceful, you know, or I'm supposed to be uh, adamant about my views. And you have to let go of a lot of that eventually. I mean, I think that's part of your evolution. I think that's part of your evolution as a team leader, if, if that's what you want to call yourself, because then you start to understand that leadership is actually about listening, massively important, that people are being heard, and that you are you know, creatively finding ways to keep everyone, keep them focused on the ultimate goal, and really, I think, and also happy. I'm sorry, but that's what I think. I think that that's a huge part of leadership is being able to diffuse the tension, is being able to read that and to keep people happy. I was just doing a, a, a very large national uh, corporate event and things got very, very tense very quickly. Something kind of exploded. You know, we were like, I don't know, 45 minutes from showtime and things got super, super tense. And, I, you know, and everyone was like laboring, laboring, trying to stay calm, trying to get there, you know. And I said, whoa, everybody stop. You know, we were all on calm. I said, I just... I just need to ask you guys something. And they're like, what? <laughs> I said, is this the most fun you've had this month? And everybody just went, ah, oh, okay. All right. Let's just, okay. We're good. Okay. We're good. You know, so, so part of leadership is, is maintaining perspective. Mm, I like that. I think you use the, the word forceful. Like you walk into the room and you, you think, or you believe you have to be forceful and you, you, you said it as, the younger version version of you, right? How much of this forceful idea or this idea of authority and strength came from a very traditional stereotype of leadership? And how does that balance off with you? And then how does that evolve through time as you learn? Uh, part of it, I think, is just, um, it is just accumulated experience. You know, it's, it's being able to live through certain experiences and be proud of them and, you know, accept the lessons learned. And it helps you just lower the temperature, lower the stakes. You know, you know it's that thing of, um, you know, here's, here's a great example. You know, if you've had the experience where you walk into a venue for the first time, you know, maybe it's a sports arena. Maybe it's, you know, a very large concert hall and you walk into those situations where you are the, you know, you're the new kid. 
and there is a full in-house staff just sort of standing there with their arms crossed, right? Saying, oh, okay, <laughs> who are you? And it's, it's realizing that, you know, when you talk about forcefulness where you can, you, you just, you walk in um, sort of uh, as a smile, you know, you walk in with ease. It's also, I think part of that is, is, you know, are you happy to be there? Are you happy to be there? Are you valuing the people that are in the room with you? Are you beginning from a place of, you know, we're all in this together? Um, or are you coming in sort of seeing this as, you know, take the hill, you know, like something to be conquered because that's, you know, you can set that tone too. And then it comes down to the fundamental belief. How do we do our best work? It really, it all comes down to that is do we do our best work when somebody is intimidating us? Um, are we making good decisions if they're fear-based decisions? Are we doing our best work where we're desperate to prove ourselves? Or are we doing our best work when there's a sense of ease and openness and people are being welcomed? Sure, I've, come, I've gone into, into, into venues where I've said, hey, everybody, good morning. We're so happy to be here. And I've had people turn to me and say, get off our stage. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, whatever. This is how we do it, okay? And then you have to decide how you're going to proceed from there. And you have to read the room and you have to decide, uh, do I need a public declaration right now? Or am I going to, you know, sort of back end this a little bit, and you know, quietly, you know, uh, connect to people individually. I mean, th that's, that's part of being a producer, right? That's part of leadership is, you know, when is it time to, you know, to, to stamp your little foot and say, okay, <laughs> this is what we're doing. And that doesn't really happen that often anymore. I really like the idea of, you know, that fluid leadership. You, you have to be very adaptable from place to place. And even, even when you're moving from, say, corporate to a concert hall to whatever, the, the people are different, right? So the way that you have to evolve in, in that community is probably it changes from your approach. What I'm interested because you mentioned the Buddhist leadership course. Was there any key takeaways from that course that you, was it a reinforcement of your ideas or was there something that it brought to light um, that was new? I think, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of it felt, you know, sometimes when it, I have a friend who talks about the two, that we're all little tuning forks. And when you encounter something that really works for you, you, you know, you, you respond, you know, at that frequency. That's kind of what that course was like for me because I've, you know, I've been, I've been studying for, I've been a student for a long time of Buddhism. And so when I went to this course, I thought, ah, isn't this an interesting way of taking those ideas and migrating them over into this part of my life? Which, of course, is really why, is, isn't that why you, you, you attempt any spiritual practice so, so that it's, you know, it's um, supporting you in all aspects of your life? So, yes, it did, it did sort of validate, you know, what I'd been studying. It certainly reinforced the concept of being open, being accepting, not being reactive emotionally, you know, having that little bit of distance to say, ah, oh, oh, I see how this is playing. Ah, okay. This person is saying this because they are anxious because, of, mm, okay. You know, it's being able to, it's, it's taking that step back and not, and really it is about ego. Sorry, but it is, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to relinquish 
you know, that sense of ego and that Again, it's like lowering the stakes. It's like, you guys were making a show. It'll be fine, <laughs> right? It'll be fine. And the other thing is that, you know, my favorite Buddhist teachers are funny. You know, there's always a lot of laughter. So it's, it's bringing that. We certainly laughed a lot during the training program. That's for sure. And the thing that they emphasized over and over and over again was listening. How incredibly important it is that the people that you are you know, either living with side by side or working with that, that you're listening, you're listening to them because that's going to inform, you know, your next steps and your understanding of them. Right. No question. It was very, very helpful. And uh, you mentioned your Buddhist teachers, but also I, I imagined you had other teachers or mentors or in general people that have helped you lead and led you through. Um, are there any other specific lessons or things that you remember and cherish? Absolutely. I was so fortunate to have really exceptional mentors along the way. And I mean, starting in childhood, you know, people who, you know, who guided me. I mean, I was, you know, as a kid, I was the only person in my family who was interested, not that my family wasn't interested in the arts, but who was obsessed with the arts obsessed, you know, from a very young age, collecting the uh, great artist series from the grocery store, <laughs> right? And pouring over those little booklets from a very young age, fascinated by visual art, obsessed with cinema, skipping school so I could like, you know, go see Lawrence of Arabia again at the repertory cinema, uh, you know, working in high school, you know, so I could watch uh, foreign films for free, you know, at the cafe, at the, at the art house cinema. So, you know, that's, it's, it, the path was very clear in that sense. And I was very lucky because I had an aunt who loved the arts who grew up in New York City, oh my gosh, like so exciting, and who had worked as an assistant to Leonard Bernstein. So she was like, to me, like just legendary. And what was wonderful about that is that she, I mean, as I was a kid and she wanted to know my opinion. Well, what did you think of this when you saw it? And, you know, and what did you, I mean, again, it's that listening, it's that validation. And, and of course she would share all these stories and she had this encyclopedic knowledge of opera. So she, you know, taught me all about that. But I think what she taught me early on was that this love, you know, for creativity, you know, here's an adult who has it too, you know, that I can model. I, I have someone whose behavior I can model myself on. So she for sure was my first mentor. And then, you know, I, I was very, very lucky in school. You know, I was very lucky that I had really um, supportive teachers who went, well, why don't you try writing a play? Oh, well, well why don't you try? Why, why, why don't you try doing this? Well, why don't you try doing that? And I think what that did is it laid a foundation of, well, try this. We'll try that. Oh, and that's kind of been the, the, the path of my career. It's like, hey, Jen, do you want to? Do you want to direct an awards show? Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've never done that. Sure, why not? Let's, okay, sure, sure, sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Sure. And so I had those, those people really tremendous support all through my early life, my early career. Um, people who, you know, who just said, well, I mean, this is what's so interesting is that I did, I didn't, I wasn't that person who had a five-year plan and I admire those people but I didn't have it. So what I had was the ability to say yes. 
you know, to, to, to whatever came my way. And, you know, one thing led to the next, led to the next, because I kept saying yes. And so I had those mentors who said, yeah, try that. Why don't you do this? You know, and I, I have to say, sadly, every major step forward in my career is probably because someone said, hey, have you ever thought about producing? No. What does a producer do? Well, do you want to apprentice, you know, on this project? Yeah, <laughs> sure. So I, I did. I had really wonderful teachers. And what I would say links all of them is a generosity of spirit, a tremendous generosity. And so what that does is it cultivates in you a deep desire to be that person for somebody else. That's a great answer. What would you say or how would you define the difference between producing and directing? Because, you know, we we have a global audience and that definition, it can be very, very, very broad. And we have this discussion a lot in terms of trying to define there's no one job description for those roles depending on where you sit. And because you do stuff in so many different genres of entertainment, that must vary for you, I, I guess, as well. But so, but so Taddy, tell us how you approach each role or, or combine those. You know, that's a great point, Anna, because there is no definition. And certainly when you start working as a producer, you realize there's no, there's no uh, handbook. There's no, <laughs> there's no job description. So then you learn the word scope. And you and you start to learn to enter into that conversation on every project. Okay, what kind of a producer are you looking for? What is the scope you have in mind for this particular job? Because I think whether you're a director or a producer, it really has a lot to do with what you did in your early career. You know, because I think as a director, some people come to directing uh, from the acting profession you know they they come to it from with a very strong empathy uh, and a very strong understanding of the actor's experience uh, some people come to directing uh, from the design side you know they they've been, you know they've been doing a lot of beautiful design work and they think ah, I want to take that next step forward and I want to be able to animate what I'm creating and then I know a lot of people who came to directing from stage management as I did because my early career was as a stage manager and so you come to directing, maybe, you know, maybe initially seeing the playing field a little bit differently as a director, if you come to it from stage management, because you've had the wonderful opportunity of interacting with every single department in the production as a stage manager. So you have, you know, you have that understanding of how everybody functions together. So I would say the difference between directing and producing, maybe in a way, it's like, if you're the director, you get to decide everything that happens between the goalposts on a field of play, right? Everything that happens on that field of play, you are, you are collaborating, you're collaborating with your, with your, with your um, colleagues, you're, you know, determining the path from A to B, you know, the foundation of how the story is told, all of those great things. I think if you're producing, you're looking at that too, but you're also looking at how many entrances there are into the stadium and where people are parking and how many bank machines are there and what is the totality of the experience. You have to, I think maybe that's one way of looking at the difference between directing and producing. And I think um, that's why you do see some people who like to do both right? Because you like to um, contract and expand your view depending on the project. You know, sometimes you want to have that very, sometimes I love having that very, not narrow focus, but, you know, very focused concept, 
you know, that, that you have to have as a director, that real focus on the experiential um, side of the project and what are people going to feel? And most importantly is how are you bringing people into the world of this story? That's my favorite part about directing is those first moments where people start to understand where they are and what's about to happen. Love, love that. As a producer, you're looking at the entire mechanism, the entire machine, right? So it's wonderful as a producer to to collaborate on the creative, but you're also looking at everything else. Right. You know, if it, if it's, if it's a commercial venture, it's the marketing, it's the, it's everything, you know, it's, 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 it's how the entire machine runs. And that's very exciting too. But what you get to do in both positions that I love is you you get to team build. So as a director, you get to build the creative team as a producer, you get to build, you know, the overall team, right. You, you, you get to, you get to build these amazing teams of people and that's, that's wonderful. How would you define or how do you set the differences for um, working for commercial and co- corporate nonprofit environments? Yeah. How do you sort of first figure out what each one is, what each project is? And, you know, when I teach, I always, I, I always emphasize whether it's commercial, nonprofit, corporate, it's still a show in one way or another. You're still making a show. And the main differences usually are organizational structure, because the teams are built differently. Vocabulary is always really interesting because vocabulary changes. You have to be a sort of, you have to speak fluent corporate. <laughs> you have to speak, you know, you have to, um, you know, you have to understand. Yes, I speak. I'm fluent in corporate. Yes, thank you. How, do, how many languages do you speak, Jen? Oh, well. I speak English, and then I speak corporate quite well, and uh, and I speak nonprofit. So really, I'm I'm uh, trilingual. <laughs> but it's true, right? There is a different language, and there is a different. You have to learn the hierarchy, the internal hierarchy. Where are the decisions getting made? Who's making the decisions? Right? How do you how do you follow the decision making process uh, in each of those worlds? You know, in the in the nonprofit world, you know, there's there's a board of directors. There's a you know, I don't I don't have to take everybody through it, but you know what it's like. There's a there's a completely uh, different hierarchy, and then you have to understand the culture of each of those organizations. You know, to, to understand um, what kind of um, what kind of a world you're walking into. So it's interesting because in in many ways they're obviously they're very similar, right? We're all we're all working toward whatever our measure of success is in each of those in each of those situations and as we all know sometimes success is measured by is is you know the priority is financial financial fiscal responsibility you know sometimes it's measured in something more ephemeral you know how it makes people feel how how do people respond to the art that you're you know that you're creating for them? So you have to sometimes I do in the early phase of a conversation I'll say what is what is success to you on this project? Help me understand what success is for you because that that's very informative, right? That that will guide that will guide a lot of your decision making. What makes it successful? And then you know then you start to you know it's like the old fable about the the blind man and the elephant, right? Then you start to feel your way around it and figure out what this beast is, you know, and, and, um, 
you know, how ambitious is it? Is it realistic? Um, who's working on it? You know, you start to, you know, drill down into those things too. Do you find that sometimes you're, I guess, batting for different sides in some situations where it's business and then you need to try to put creative in it so it's actually something decent or vice versa where it's so creative but there's going to be no profit so you need to push it on the other way? And <laughs> I, I, I find myself in those situations sometimes and it's like how much do I fight to try and make a good product when the person isn't really caring about, the, you know, they're caring about the financial side and then, yeah, it's it, for me it's a hard thing to try and navigate. I mean, how do you approach it? Well, you know, it's, I go to the fundamentals of project management, funnily enough, time, resources, what is it? Uh, Time, money, quality. That's it. That's the Holy Trinity, right? And that's the, that's the juggling act, right? Do I have enough time to get this done? If I don't have enough time, is that going to compromise the quality of the project? If I have enough money, you know, will it, you know, do I have, you know, like they all impact each other. If I don't have enough money, will it impact the quality of the project? Um, you know, it, it's, that's the juggling act, time, quality, and money or resources. Well, you know, if we, we don't want to be so vulgar, God. Money. But I think what we learn, especially like let's say you are in a nonprofit situation, I mean, is there anywhere where you are trained to be more ingenious, you know, than when you're working at a nonprofit arts organization? <laughs> it's like you can make 500 yeah. bucks go a long way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, and I, I absolutely believe like that necessity, you know, what that does is it cultivates this, you know. A little bit of fearlessness, a little bit, and this, this a sense of ingenuity, right? Okay, oh, okay, we can't do it that way. And you know, you know who I learned that really from is in nonprofit theater. I learned that the most in nonprofit theater, especially from working with certain designers, because I remember as a very young director, I'd say, "Oh, I've I've got this vision," and she'd like the <laughs> designer would say, "If you tell me you dreamt this, I'm going to throw you out of my office. I just need you to know that, right? If you tell me that." No, uh, oh, oh, okay, well, okay, it wasn't a dream. But what was fascinating is that we would start with this, you know, our, our beautiful concept. Oh, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like, oh, we're going to build a paper mache mountain and a dragon's going to come out of it. And, you know, it's going to be magical. And then, you know, they say, well, we don't have enough money for that. And I, as a young director, I didn't know how really to respond to that until I saw the designer say, oh, that's okay. Throw it out. Let's start again. And I was like, what? You can just do that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay, that one won't work. Don't worry. We'll, we'll come up with something else. And that's when I learned this whole notion of the well is bottomless, right? Oh, oh, that won't work. That idea won't work. Okay. Okay, what do you want to do instead? Oh, well, let's, let's, let's figure out another way around it, you know, over it, under it. And so I think certainly working in, in, in the nonprofit sector, you you know, by necessity, you learn how to do that. And then that kind of agility and that kind of, you know, quick creativity, that's going to serve you in any of those sectors, any of those sectors. I still think, I think it's really interesting in all three that we still have days where we're disappointed when the path is, isn't completely smooth. I still have them, right? You Why think, are we still surprised by that? <laughs> we're still surprised, right? We go, well, that should have been easy. Why wasn't that easy? It's like, well, because, you know, there are human beings involved and there's seven of them in this one conversation and everyone has an opinion and it didn't go the way you thought it would. And we're still amazed. Right? It's like, why didn't that just go the way I thought it was going to go? Well, 
you know, because it doesn't. But that kind of um, belief that there's more where that came from in terms of ideas, solutions, um, calling on your calling on your colleagues, you know, to find a collective solution will always work, right? So, so that's, you know, that, that again, I say that, that came from me, that came from nonprofit, right? And then that informs the work you do in the commercial world, because you still have those, right? You still have those constraints in the commercial world. I mean, we've all worked on shows that are massive, you know, that have multi-million dollar budgets and we still bump up against those constraints. You know, it's just, it's just the economy of scale, right? So you, you, you can still try to do too much with the money you have, even if you have $3 million, <laughs> you know, you're still going to have that moment where someone says, no, you can't afford that. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, what, what should we do instead? And again, it goes down to the cult, the culture of the organization you're working with. What are their priorities? What are the, no, no, not just what are their priorities. You know, what I love to ask people is what's keeping you up at night? in any sector, because if you ask somebody that, whether it's, it will tell you where their priorities are, um, you know, where the organizations, uh, you know, where there may be some frailty that you need to support. Um, I love asking people that. What is keeping you up at night, no matter what sector? Because the, everyone will have an answer. I, uh, I love that. I wanted to tell you, I had that kind of juxtaposition of many years ago, I went from working on a very low-budget pantomime in Worthing, England, Cinderella, in this very small rundown theatre on the coast of Worthing, to Cirque du Soleil's $300 million The Beatles show. And that within a matter of months I worked on those two things. And I love it because it's just this one day I'm cleaning up Shetland pony poo on a stage and the next thing I'm, like, working with a multi-million dollar, I'm working with Paul McCartney, like, and... In that was the same thing. There was still the same problems. There were still issues with trying to do a show. There was still questions about money. And I, I always loved that, that I had that sort of jump from one to the other and the irony of, like, you know, performing the same kind of role but just in a completely different context is quite funny. It's wonderful. And it's, it, I love that. And I've had that experience too where you go from, I went, I, I went from the Pan Am Games well, I, I think I was actually trying to break myself one year where I was working on the Pan Am, a huge, we were doing something called, I was working as the creative producer for something called the Victory Celebrations, which was this huge nightly extravaganza, right? And then on top of that, I was, I really wanted to do this other project for a nonprofit arts festival. So I was trying to do both. <laughs> it was the same sort of thing where you're like, hey, who's, who's playing on the plaza tonight? Oh, wow, it's the roots and the flaming lips. And then I'd, you know, go over to this park and say, you guys, we got we to gotta dig some more mud and uh, put, put it in these planters because we're trying to add some plants around the stage. <laughs> you know? it's like, and, but it's, as you say, Anna, it's exactly the same. <laughs> so how can people call you and find you? Oh, what a good question. Well, I guess uh, uh, LinkedIn. I guess that's my most public. I think that's my most public-facing persona. I I imagine would be uh, would be me on LinkedIn. Fantastic! Crazy. Isn't that crazy? Jen Stein Skylark on Instagram. <laughs> thank you very much. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. What a pleasure. Same.
We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There's a link in our podcast description where you can send us your podcast requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcasts for free, and if you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast description. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Zare for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast. Thanks for listening.